finish off the book early in the new year. A number of people have asked me, are you preaching right through the book? Or are you going to finish at chapter 6? And I've said, um, of course I'm going to preach right through the book. And the reason people are asking is because the book of Daniel essentially comes to us in two halves. The first six chapters are quite straightforward in some ways. They're narratives uh, about Daniel and his three friends who are, find themselves in a foreign land in Babylon. The second half is full of visions that Daniel has about what's going to happen in the future. And they're quite difficult to understand, but all of this book is scripture, and of course we're going to work through it all and try to discern what God would have for us. In Romans 15 verse four, we read of the Old Testament scriptures. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, so that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. The book of Daniel is in our Bibles to give us instruction, instruction as Christians on how to live faithful lives wherever God places us in this world. It's also here to encourage us, that is to put courage into us so that we can live distinctive Christian lives in an ever-changing society. This book is also given to us to fill our hearts with hope, reminding us that though earthly kingdoms come and go, it is the kingdom of God that will stand forever. The book of Daniel is in our Bibles to present to us a vision of God's sovereign rule and unshakable kingdom. And that vision is given so that we will find confidence to live distinct and faithful Christian lives in this world. This book of Daniel is not mainly about Daniel and daring to be a Daniel. It's not ultimately about lion's dens, fiery furnaces, and Hebrew men with weird names. This is ultimately a book about God. Not a small, weak, namby-pamby God, but a sovereign God who causes kingdoms to rise and fall. A God who can quench the power of the flames, shut the mouth of lions, who can humble the proud, raise up the lowly. A God who is an unchanging rock of stability for us in an ever-changing world. The revelation of this sovereign, powerful God is the main purpose of the book of Daniel. And it is Daniel's vision of this God, his faith in this God, that gives him the courage to live faithfully in Babylon where hardly anyone believed what he believed. We need desperately to rediscover this big vision of God in our day and age. If we're going to have courage to live for Christ faithfully in our rapidly changing society, we need a vision of a God who is a rock, 
who is stable, sovereign, able to hold us when everything else around us is changing and shaking. The pace at which we are moving through change in our culture at the moment is almost dizzying. I'm sure you've felt it. In fact, we could say that one of the only constants in our lives right now is change. Think of what we've experienced over the past few years. Government changes, Brexit changes, Stormont changes, Prime Minister changes, changes in the monarchy. Think of all the changes we've moved through associated with COVID. More personally though, Think of all the changes we're all moving through in our own lives. Changes of job, country we live in, places we live in. Changes in our family situation. Nothing static. Changes in our financial security or position. Changes related to aging, health changes. Think of all the changes we're experiencing as a church. It can make you feel sometimes a bit dizzy. It's destabilizing. But perhaps above all, we are living through significant changes in the religious climate of Northern Ireland. Simon referred to this, the re recent census results demonstrate what we are all feeling as Christians, the rampant rise of secularism in Northern Ireland. Fewer people submit their lives to the authority of God and his word. We see changes around views on marriage, Family, sexuality, abortion. Let's be honest, far more people want to go out for coffee on a Sunday morning than come to church on a Sunday morning. My weekly drive down the Ormo Road to church tells me that. Christendom, if it ever existed in Northern Ireland, is now gone. To be an evangelical Christian in Northern Ireland is now to be in a minority. Like Daniel, as Christians, we are foreigners living in a strange land. This land thinks differently to us, believes differently to us, and lives differently to us. And the big question we have to ask in this Babylon we find ourselves in is, how can we live faithful and distinctive lives for the glory of God in the world today? And that is what the book of Daniel is in the Bible to teach us. This morning, we're going to get stuck straight into the first chapter, which is really a blueprint for how to live well when you find yourself in a culture that doesn't believe or think or live the way you do. This opening chapter gives us a warning on how our surrounding culture will try to shape us, to erode steadily away our Christian identity. And it also gives us wise instruction for how not only to resist that shaping influence of our surrounding culture, but how to actually flourish in the midst of it, how to stand against it and to flourish. We're not called to just survive in Babylon, we're called to thrive. So let's get straight into the first chapter, and the heading over this first chapter could simply be stated, Welcome to Babylon. In the first two verses, we're told, in the third year of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, 
Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem and besieged it. The time is around 605 BC. Babylon and its empire was the most advanced civilization of the day. Part of their ongoing expansion project involved them swallowing up Jerusalem and the surrounding territories around the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea. In verse 2, we read that this king of Babylon, the greatest leader of his day, he overthrows King Jehoiakim, the leader of the king of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. King Nebuchadnezzar plunders some of the wealth from the temple. You remember when Solomon built this temple, there was lots of gold in it, and lots of gold uh, furniture and articles. And of course, Nebuchadnezzar goes there, plunders it, takes the stuff. In verse 3 and 4, we're told that he also kidnaps some of the most gifted young people from Israel's royal family and nobility to serve in the king's palace. And it is among this group where in verse 6 we learn there were four young Jewish lads named Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Think about them. Four young guys, probably around university age, you're thinking around 18, they're carried off to a foreign city, a foreign culture, where people thought differently to them, spoke a different language, acted differently, and held totally, a totally different set of religious beliefs to them. Kind of like many young Christians today who go off to university. They find themselves in a new place, surrounded by people who think differently to them. If they've grown up in a little sheltered bubble, that bubble is burst, and suddenly they're exposed to people who think differently, speak differently, believe differently, and act differently. Before we press on into the chapter, there's two things I'd like us just to hold in our minds right at the outset before we move on. I want to make a comment, first of all, about this city of Babylon, where these young lads were carried off to. For though Babylon was a city, a physical place, it stands in Scripture, Babylon, for so much more than just an ancient Middle Eastern city. What do I mean by this? Well, from Genesis to Revelation, Babylon is kind of like a code name for the world living in rebellion against God and proudly trying to do life without Him. You see this from Genesis to Revelation. For example, in the book of Genesis, chapter 11, we read of a group of people who move farther and farther away from the Garden of Eden, where God had placed the first man and first woman. The people in Genesis chapter 11 gather together and they attempt to build a city and they say, let us make a name for ourselves. They, attempt, they sort of think that, that they can build this city up to heaven and just make their own way, make their own morality, make their, their own religious system. That city Babylon, it was called that in Genesis 11, because there God came down to confuse the language of the people and to stop their project. And it's from there that we get this idea of babbling, confused language, because God confused the language of the people and scattered them all across the earth. 
That city was called Babel, which is the same name in Hebrew for Babylon. It's a picture of humans trying to build their lives without God. Through Scripture then, different writers allude to Babylon when they speak of this world and refer to the world in its sinfulness. For example, in the New Testament, the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 5.13 uses the language of Babylon to speak of the city of Rome that he is in. He greets his recipients as he writes his letter, and he says, those she who is in Babylon greets you. Now, Peter was writing from Rome as far as we understand, and he says that he's essentially saying when he says, she who is in Rome greets you, he's saying the church in Rome greets you, but he calls it Babylon. Because you see, Babylon becomes this picture in Scripture of cities, places, the world living without God. The idea of outside of the church, the world out there is Babylon. In the book of Revelation then, the world in rebellion against God comes to this great crescendo and it's depicted as a city that's bustling, busy, filled with pride, materialism, wealth, and evil. What is the city called in the book of Revelation? Babylon. So though it is a physical city in the Old Testament, though it is a place you could go and visit the ruins of it today, in Scripture it came to symbolize so much more than just a physical city. It came to be like a code word for the world living in rebellion against God. So when we read that these young Jewish followers of God are taken out of their own city, Jerusalem, to live as exiles in Babylon, we have biblical warrant to see this as a picture of Christians today trying to figure out how to do life in this world. This world that by nature has no interest in God. For us, our Babylon is Belfast. How do we as Christians live lives in this culture where fewer and fewer people believe, think, live and act the way we do as Christians? So I want us to get that fixed in our mind. They're whisked off to Babylon. But we're to see here a picture of Christians trying to do life in a world that is opposed to God. There's so much here that is relevant for us. But the second observation I want to make before we press on through the opening chapter is notice verse 2. We get a little statement that lets us know who is really in control of what is going on in history and in this in this so-called victory of Babylon. In verse 2 we read, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Now that is striking. It's small, it's subtle, but it's powerful. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into the hand of of Nebuchadnezzar. You see, it looked historically like Babylon and her more powerful so-called gods had overthrown the Almighty God and his people in Israel. Indeed, later in the book, this king Nebuchadnezzar is going to boast of doing this very thing. One day he walks out over a balcony and looks over his city and he says, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my might and my great hand? And he proudly exalts himself even over God. 
But this little verse, the Lord gave Jehoiakim into the hands of the Babylonian king, reminds us that the God, the one true living God, is still sovereign. He's the one who causes nations to rise and fall. You see, back in the prophecy of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 39, God had issued warnings through the prophet to his people in the southern kingdom of Judah that because of their sinfulness, he was going to judge them. He said his instrument for judgment would be the Babylonians. They would raise up an army. They would invade. They would lay siege to the city. And many exiles, prisoners, would be carried off to the city of Babylon. God said he was going to judge Israel through the Babylonians. And so when we read in verse 2, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand, we're to see God is doing exactly what he said he would do because of the sin of Israel. But here's something we're to notice. His purpose for bringing his people out of Jerusalem and into Babylon was not just for judgment. You see, there are other passages like Jeremiah 29, where God speaks through the prophet Jeremiah and says that he wants those exiles to settle down in Babylon. They're actually to seek the welfare of the city. They're to pray for the city. They're to be God's witnesses, salt and light shining for the kingdom in Babylon. They will be the presence of God's kingdom right in the heart of Babylon. God had a mission and work for his people in Babylon. They were to bring the presence of the kingdom to the city. And what we're going to see as we work through this book is how powerful a quiet, faithful, steady life lived for God can be. Because through this quiet, steady witness of people like Daniel and his three friends, we see people in Babylon who start professing faith in the one true God. They start turning away from idols and saying there is none like the Lord. And so I think this is a beautiful picture for us today. Here we are, as God's people, right in the heart of our Babylon, Belfast. And though we see a world that looks like it's in chaos, God is still sovereign over Belfast. And he has us, his people, right in the heart of Belfast to be witnesses, to bring the presence of the kingdom right into the heart of this city. There's work for us to do in Babylon. And it is good, and it is meaningful, and it is hope-filled. So, welcome to Babylon. That's the sign over the first couple of verses in this book. But the second thing we see in this chapter is a warning. Watch out for Babylon's effort to Babylonianize you. So you get a welcome, but then you get a watch out. King Nebuchadnezzar we read in these opening verses, had a clear strategy for strengthening his empire. He wanted to win over the allegiance of these foreign prisoners who were coming into his kingdom. He wanted to make the Israelites fall in love with Babylon. He wanted to make God's people, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, he wanted to make them love Babylon so much that they'd never want to go home that they would forget 
that Babylon wasn't their true home. This was a good strategy. Get young people, the future leaders of Israel, pump into them the philosophy and worldview of Babylon, shape their worldview, and in time you won't have mere exiles, you'll have allies. And politically that was expedient. He could send these Babylon lovers back to their own countries and they would enact his policy where he wanted it to be enacted. Nebuchadnezzar uses several tactics to take these members of God's kingdom and to Babylonianize them. And there's a real warning for us here and instruction for us. Four ways the true king of Babylon, Satan, will try to erode our Christian identity and assimilate us into the world. That's what we see in what Nebuchadnezzar tries to do to these young members of the kingdom of God. He uses four main strategies to deprogram them so that they don't think like God's people anymore, but they start to think like people of the world. And I'm saying the true king of Babylon, Satan, is doing everything he can to erode our Christian identity, and he uses these four tactics continually. Let's look at what Nebuchadnezzar does to deprogram Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and then think about how this happens to ourselves today. The first thing he does is he isolates them. He takes these young members of the kingdom away from Jerusalem, from everything they know, to Babylon. Daniel and his three friends couldn't gather anymore for weekly public worship with other like-minded people. They were isolated from godly influences, godly teaching, godly examples of how to live and serve the one true God. As Christians, we must always beware the danger of getting isolated from the church and from other Christians. You know that if you keep coals in a fire, they burn nice and hot. You lift one coal out and set it on the hearth, in no time the glow goes down, it goes cold and it dies. Young Christians, especially those who find themselves here this morning, students off at uni, young adults starting off your life in a career path, surrounded by people in your environment who don't think, speak, live, work the way or act the way you do. Get plugged into a church. You're in a vulnerable place if you get disconnected from the people of God. Nebuchadnezzar knew, if I can just isolate them from all of those godly influences, I'll be able to get into their mind. The world wants to do the same to you. Isolate you from Christians, from church, to get you to believe church is boring, church is irrelevant, no one goes there anymore, I'd rather do coffee on a Sunday morning. Satan wants you to believe that, to isolate you, to start getting into your mind, deprogramming you. The first tactic Nebuchadnezzar uses on these young men is isolation. The second is indoctrination. In verse 4, we read that these young men were to be brought into the king's palace, were to be taught the language and literature of the Chaldeans, another word for the Babylonians, essentially. Verse 5 tells us they were to be indoctrinated for three years. It's as if they were enrolled in King Nebuchadnezzar's college, King's College Babylon. Three years of a university degree in the history of Babylon, the many gods of Babylonian culture, the religious and 
and uh, means of divination that was so part of Babylonian life. Babylon was a polytheistic society, a society of moral relativism. There were no absolutes, but you kind of just made your way according to whatever God would take your fancy. This world is trying constantly to indoctrinate us as Christians with the gods of this world. All through this week, since last Sunday, from uh, Monday to today, all the messages that are being pumped into you all day long is that there is not just one true God who is a creator of the heavens and earth. There is not just one unique way of salvation. This world is trying to indoctrinate you all week long that there is no absolute truth, no absolute morality, and that the self is sovereign. You're your God. You make up your own way. If it feels good, do it. No one should be able to ask you, question you, or stop you from doing what you want to do if that will give you a sense of self-actualization. There's no truth. Therefore, you just go and make up your own way in the world. That is what we are having pumped into us day and daily. This is Babylon's tactic to Babylonianize you. This is the battle for the mind. We've got to make sure we keep our wits about us and that we don't get intoxicated with the doctrines of Babylon. The Apostle Paul put it so clearly in Romans 12 too, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You've got to have your mind renewed constantly, washed constantly with the truth of what is real, God's Word. The third tactic Nebuchadnezzar uses is inebriation. We've had isolation, indoctrination, now inebriation. Verse 5, the king assigned to them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. The king's tactic was to give these young guys the best that Babylon had to offer, the best of Babylon's culinary delicacies, spoil them with privileges, seduce them to a style of life that would make them never want to go back to the simple life in Israel, the life of self-denial and simplicity. A few weeks ago, uh, I used the example of the movie Peter Pan. I'm sure some of you heard it, but it's worth reminding you of in case some of you didn't. In the uh, movie Hook, Uh, Captain Hook kidnaps Peter Pan's son, Jack, and he takes him to Neverland. And young Jack wants to escape from Hook continually. So Hook comes up with a plan. He says, I am going to give this young boy, Jack, the best time in Neverland. The best food, the best clothes. We're going to play a game of baseball so that he really enjoys it. We're going to make him feel so at home in Neverland that if anyone comes to rescue him, he'll not even want to go. And eventually in the movie, Peter Pan finds his happy thought. He flies in to come and rescue Jack. And he says, Jack, it's time to come home. And what does Jack say to Peter Pan, his dad? He says, Dad, I am home. And he didn't want to leave. He'd been so inebriated, intoxicated with the best that Neverland had to offer that when it came to thinking of his true home, he said, no, 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 this is now my home. And we want to be really careful that we don't become inebriated, intoxicated with all the material things of Babylon to the point where we start to forget 
This is not our final home. We're passing through. We're not to settle and go native in Babylon because we're not the people of Babylon. Well, the fourth thing that Nebuchadnezzar does then, after this isolation, indoctrination, and inebriation, is he starts a project of identity renewal for these young guys. Verses 6 and 7, we're given the Hebrew names of the four young men, Daniel, which means God is my judge, Hananiah, which means God has been gracious, Mishael, which means who is what God is, and Azariah, God is my help. The name of God was on these men. What does Nebuchadnezzar do? Let's take that name off them. He puts onto them Babylonian names that all represent the actions of certain Babylonian gods. Belteshazzar, for example, Daniel's new name means something like, may Lady Bell protect his life. And all the other names follow suit. You see, this was a total reprogramming exercise being conducted on these young Israelites. A new place, new ideas, new privileges, new name. What a temptation for them to let go of their true identity as people of the kingdom of God. They had everything that Babylon had to offer right there for them. And the question we're left wondering there at the end of verse 7 is, how are they going to fare? Are they going to forget who they are? Well, after the welcome to Babylon and the warnings against how Babylon is trying to Babylonianize you, we get finally in the chapter this wise instruction on how to live distinctively in Babylon. Daniel's example here is so instructive for us. It's characterized essentially by three things. First, steady resolve. If you want to stand against the efforts of Babylon's Babylonianization of you, if you want to not just survive but thrive, here are the things you want to build in place in your Christian life. First, steady resolve. Verse 8, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank. There's a lovely little quirky thing in the Hebrew language here. Um, the, The person trying to put the names on these four young men, it says that they they set the names upon them. And here, that word resolved means Daniel set it on his heart, not to compromise with Babylon. It's lovely. You don't really see it reflected in the English. It's hard to translate it, but they're trying to set new names on them, deprogram them, make them forget God. Daniel says, I'm setting something in my heart. I am not going to bow down to Babylon. It's brilliant. So, Daniel, he lived his life in Babylon as a young guy with many things he wouldn't have chosen. Think of the things that he did accept. He accepted the new name, the teaching. But when it came to this food issue, he drew a line and said, no. Now, why was this? What was wrong with the food? We're not told in the narrative. We're just told that he thought this would, he believed that this would defile him. 
Now, that might have been that he thought because of certain Levitical laws in the Old Testament, he couldn't eat the king's food, but why would that have made the vegetables okay to eat? Was it sacrificed to idols? Maybe, but then again, the vegetables would be sacrificed to idols. Would sitting down for a meal with the king and all these delicacies make it look like Daniel had fully gone Babylonian and he was supporting the king and all his convictions? We don't know for sure, but we do know for Daniel to partake of that food, it would have been a step too far. And as Christians, this is instructive for us because in our own Babylon, we're not called to stand against everything in this world. In fact, there's a lot we're told that God has given us in this world to enjoy. We have to be careful in the church that we don't fall back into a pattern where we're characterized as the people who just say no to everything, the people who are against everything. We have a lot of good things from God to enjoy in Babylon, but when Babylon pressurizes us to do things that are clearly contrary to God's word, or things that will steadily erode our sense of Christian identity and witness, we are called to simply draw a line and say, no. It's as if our culture today counts the word no on a moral level as like the the most unforbiddable thing. You know, if you were to say, no, you shouldn't do that, it's like, whoa, well, who are you to say that? Today, let's face it, where is our big battle line where as Christians we've got to draw a line? It seems to me to be on the front of human sexuality and identity. Our world is saying, you can make up whatever you want to be. If you're a woman in a man's body, then go with it. If you're a man in a woman's body, go with it. If you want to To marry a man, go with it. If you want as a man to marry a man, go with it. If you want as a woman to marry a woman, go with it. Whatever, there's no absolute morality. You just do whatever you want. And as Christians who want to live our lives under the authority of this book, not because there are yeses and noes, but because God's pattern for living is the pattern of human flourishing, we want to say to the world, look, we're... We want to to live well. We want to engage with our society. We want to engage with our culture. There's a lot that we will engage with that we feel we can, but every now and again, we're going to come up against something that Babylon wants us to do, and because of our Christian convictions, we have to say no. And it won't be popular, and people won't like us, and people will start saying, well, I thought as Christians you were supposed to be loving And we'll say we are being loving because to be truly loving is to point people towards God's moral absolutes. The creator knows how we best flourish. And so living in Babylon today requires steady resolve. We've got to know God's word and we've got to live according to it, not letting Babylon defile us. You've got to know what you believe as a minority, and you've got to be willing to stand for what you believe as a minority. For so many years, churches have been training Christians how to connect with their culture and be seeker-friendly. Now we need to train Christian minorities on how to stand against the culture and live as a minority with a distinct Christian identity. And our moral identity is what the world is longing for. We've got to rediscover our confidence in our 
better story. So steady resolve characterizes Daniel's wise example on how to live in Babylon. The second thing that characterizes his example is tied to the first, and it's subtle faithfulness. Let's not just observe Daniel's resolve, but the manner in which he goes about living out his convictions. This is wonderful. He stands firm, but with a gracious subtlety about him. In verse 8, look at what he does. He privately speaks to the equivalent of his academic advisor, and he asks him to allow him not to defile himself. Daniel goes and asks permission not to eat the king's food. He doesn't just brashly go and abrasively fight. He graciously seeks to take a, a stand full of conviction, but also full of grace. And look at how wonderful verse 9 is. We read that God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. God is with his young servant as he tries to take a stand for God in a culture that's trying to deprogram him. God gives him what he needs to stand faithful when the pressure's on. And let me speak to, again, a lot of you who are young here this morning as well to those who are older, because we never ultimately come out from the umbre- under the umbrella of peer pressure. We all face peer, peer pressure at every stage of life. We just hide it better when we're adults, when we're older. But when the pressure is on, steady resolve and subtle, gracious Faithfulness is your calling. God gives Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. He deals graciously as he stands tenaciously for the Lord. Those are the kind of Christians we need in our own Babylon in this day and age. Think of yourself in your workplace. This week ahead of you, as you're going to be surrounded by people who think differently, speak differently, act differently. Think of you as a student in your university. You're walking in there going, right, I've got to resolve not to be defiled. I've got to be gracious in my manner as I take my stand for the Lord and say, I'm a Christian. That's one of the things Daniel does essentially here. Early in this book, he puts his flag down. He says, I belong to the kingdom of God. And I would encourage you at the earliest opportunity you have, always nail your colors to the mast, say, I'm a Christian. And then people will be watching. And let your life preach truth. So steady resolve, subtle faithfulness, and then finally, Daniel lives with a sure hope. Though the chief guy was nervous about how this would work out, letting Daniel and his three friends friends eat just the vegetables. Daniel says with great confidence in verse 12, give us 10 days, put us to the test. At the end of the time, compare us with the others. And in verse 15, we're told at the end of the time, Daniel and his friends looked better than all the rest. Daniel's commitment to living for God's glory gave him a sense of confidence that God would be with him and would help him. I love the subtle, gracious, gentle, truth-filled confidence of Daniel throughout this book. We're going to see it over and over again. He looked so weak and vulnerable, but he trusted in a rock, his God, who kept infusing him with strength 
so that he could be a steady witness in the midst of a shaking world empire. He had a sure hope in his sovereign God. And we're going to see that, not just in Daniel, but in Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. I can't wait that we get to the fiery furnace passage. And what do they say? We're not going to bow down to you, king. Our God can deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow to you. See the confidence, unstoppable devotion to God. That is what we want. We don't want in Great Vic to be a bunch of superficial, half-hearted, half-baked, don't know our Bibles, don't know the power of the Holy Spirit group of Christians. We don't want to be that. We want to be strong. Christians with a big vision of a sovereign God, ready to love our city, pray for our city, seek the welfare of our city, when we have to stand against the indoctrination and inebriation of our city so that we can hold out a moral vision of human flourishing, a gospel that is filled with hope for this city that is so confused. In verses 17 to 21, we see God's hand upon Daniel and his three friends. Verse 17, we read again, and God gave them learning and skill. Verse 19, among all the others in the king's palace, there were none like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And notice, it's their Hebrew names that are still sticking here. In verse 20, we read, They're ten times better than all the other magicians and enchanters in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. They're not just standing against Babylon. They're flourishing in Babylon. And in verse 21, you get what is not just a historical note. You get a statement. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. This was the next king of the next world empire that would overthrow the Babylonians after about 70 years. So here, right in chapter 1, you get this fast forward. Daniel's going to be here for the next 70 years. And this king Nebuchadnezzar, who thinks he's so great, he's going to come and he's going to go. But Daniel's still going to be there. The next kingdom will be here. Daniel will still be in there. It's this lovely seven words in Hebrew that proclaims something great. Dale Ralph Davis in his commentary says, these last seven words of chapter one are small, but they're like dynamite. It gives us just this declaration. Kingdoms come, kingdoms go, but kingdom people will endure forever. So, Let's draw this first chapter, uh, let's draw it to a close and uh, finish up and set us up for next week as we get into this incredible vision of the kingdom of God. Here's what I want you to notice in closing. Three times in chapter one, verse two, verse nine, and verse 17, we read the words, and God gave. God gave the Israelites into the hands of the Babylonians. In the midst of this challenge, doing life in Babylon, God gave them grace and helped them to remain faithful. And thirdly, he gave them wisdom to live well in a very confusing culture. And those three and God gives are interwoven through this first chapter very intentionally to tell us 
that though you find yourself as a foreigner in a foreign land, a stranger in your city, God is with us. God didn't stand off. He walked with Daniel and his three friends into Babylon. He gave them what was needed so that they could safely flourish as exiles in a fallen world. When we move to the New Testament, and when we learn that this whole world is Babylon, we have to ask ourselves, where are we in the first chapter of Daniel, Daniel's book? Yes, we see in Daniel a wonderful example for us to follow, but before we're Daniel in this chapter, do you know who we are? We're the Babylonians. We're in Babylon. You see, by nature, we're in spiritual darkness. By nature, we are the ones who have rebelled against God. By nature, we're in sinful darkness. We don't want God. We want to push Him away by nature. But in John 3.16, we read, of another and God gave. We read that God didn't stand off from us in Babylon. He entered into Babylon to save us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. In a way, like God sent some of his faithful witnesses to Babylon, to shine the light of the kingdom amongst the Babylonians, God sent his faithful witness, Jesus Christ, so that he could shine the light of the world into the Babylon of this world. He is the ultimate man with steady resolve, gracious faithfulness, and a sure hope. He came to die to save us from Babylon, from our sin. He came to take us out of the kingdom of darkness and transfer into his own kingdom of light. And now, for those who follow Jesus, the Savior, the Lord, the true King of kings, for Christians, we're called to live as faithful witnesses for Him, called to live distinctive and faithful lives wherever we are this week, holding out the word of hope and life to others, seeking not to be Babylonianized by Babylon, we're seeking to Christianize Babylon. And what we're going to see as we progress through this book is that we so often do that by living steady, subtle, gracious, courageous Christian lives wherever God places us, in our workplaces, amongst our families, amongst our friends. It is the kingdom of God people that have erosive power that can make its way into every corner of the Babylon we find ourselves in. So let's this week, as tomorrow we've seen a sign, we see a sign as we enter into a new week, welcome to Babylon. Let's watch out for Babylon's shaping influences. Let's seek to be wise as we leave distinctive as we live distinctive and faithful lives for God's glory, and let's seek to be winsome examples to those around us of kingdom, of God living, and of our better story. Let's pray. Father, we've covered a lot there in this introduction to the book of Daniel, this great vision 
of your sovereignty and how we are to live with confidence in light of it. Thank you, Father, for this warning that we can be watching out for how Babylon is trying to Babylonianize us, how this world is trying to steadily erode our identity. Father, thank you for the wise example we see of Daniel, that steady resolve and that subtle faithfulness and that uh, steady uh, hope in you uh, and, and your kingdom that never ends. And Father, we pray that through this book and as we study it over the next few months, we pray that you would build into us new levels of courage, grace, and humility as we seek to live faithful, distinctive lives right where you've placed us in all the spheres of influence that we have. We pray that you'd help us with this. And if there are people here this morning and they're not Christians and they're outside of the kingdom of God and they're, they're still in Babylon in darkness, I just pray that they would catch even a little taste this morning of the, the flourishing that you invite us to the God who sent his son into the world, who gave us a savior to take us out of this broken world and to bring us into the kingdom of God. Give us a taste for that that will never go away until we find it quenched coming to Jesus. For we ask this in his name, amen. Let's stand together and respond uh, with this wonderful hymn of resolve, yet not I, but through Christ in me.
And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore.